Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about gynecologic cancers with Dr. Elena Ratner. Dr. Ratner is a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Elena, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. I take care of women with ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, vaginal cancer. Um, My passion is early cancer detection and even more so cancer prevention, which is really the future and I would argue the present of cancer treatments. Um, I have a a lab that uh, deals with drug development and new novel targeted therapies for ovarian cancer. Um, The treatment of ovarian cancer nowadays is so different from what it used to be in the older days. We now truly believe in targeted personalized care, um, and that is very much what I do and how my practice runs, um, and that is what my lab does as well. Um, I also have a great interest and, again, a passion for survivorship and taking care of women who are fighting cancers or have fought cancers and are survivors. Um, I am a co-founder and a director of a sexuality and menopause program for SMILO, where we take care of women who are going through hormonal changes to aid them in their quality of life and survivorship. Wow, that's a lot. So let's um, let's dig into a, a few of those things. Um, to start with, you mentioned a variety of cancers, cervical cancers, vaginal cancers, uterine cancers, ovarian cancers. It seems like there are so many cancers uh, associated with uh, the female gynecologic uh, and reproductive system. And yet, they're all a little bit different, if not very different. So can you talk a little bit about um, the epidemiology of all of these cancers? How often do they occur? And a little bit more about kind of how we can, as you say, in terms of prevention um, and early detection, how we can either prevent or detect early uh, these cancers. It seems that they all might be a little bit different in terms of how easy that is to do. Some might be um, more of the silent cancers, and some might be things for which we have uh, ready screening tests. Oh, so that's that's a wonderful question. So you are so right. Um, Gynecologic cancers are um, diverse, Um, This month actually marks the gynecologic cancer month. Um, And yes, we are always got to be aware that gynecologic cancers are really just, there's so so many different cancers um, are uh, part of it. So let's take it one by one. So cervical cancer, that is the cancer that is more commonly associated with the HPV virus. Uh, This is the kind of cancer where pap smears, 
play a very important preventative role. The good thing about cervical cancer is that usually it is pretty slow growing. um, And as long as you keep having pap smears uh, routinely per protocol, usually we're able to catch a great majority of these cancers in the pre-cancer stage. Um, The HPV vaccine very much changed the entire nature of cervical cancer. Cervical cancer became much less common, and uh, luckily we see very little of it um, in this generation of women who were vaccinated uh, for the HPV virus with an HPV vaccine. Um, This HPV vaccine really is is one of the few incredibly successful examples of cancer prevention um, in this cancer. Um, Uterine cancer is the most common gynecologic cancer. Um, As you know, here um, in the States, we have an epidemic of obesity. Obesity, unfortunately, increases women's uh, risk of having endometrial cancer very significantly uh, because um, estrogen is produced by this adipose tissue um, when we have um, extra obesity. So that contributes. Uh, Diabetes contributes. Um, But the good news with endometrial cancer is that usually women have symptoms. And that is actually the most important thing about endometrial cancer is that women are always aware that once they reach menopause, if they start having bleeding again, that that is not normal. And even though most women who do bleed after menopause actually do not have cancer, um, some do. And the good news about endometrial cancer is that it's very curable and usually detected very early, as long as women know that that kind of bleeding is, is abnormal. Um, and usually all you would need is just a biopsy, um, and that would catch, again, usually either an early cancer or pre-cancer. The most challenging cancer within the gynecologic cancers um, remains ovarian cancer. Um, You know, we call ovarian cancer the cancer that whispers uh, because it is very difficult to find these cancers early. Um, You know, again, my passion is early detection prevention. So I actually do not believe that ovarian cancer whispers. I believe that it is not whispering. It is speaking and we're just not listening to it. So early detection and prevention of ovarian cancer relies in huge part to advocacy and awareness and not only teaching women about sign and symptoms of ovarian cancer, but making sure that women get the care they deserve. There's a lot of literature that women with ovarian cancer usually feel symptoms for a good six months to a year to even two years sometimes before the cancer is actually diagnosed. And there's literature that women go from one provider to another provider before they're finally appropriately diagnosed. So it is very, very important for women to know that especially around time of menopause, especially a little bit later than menopause, if they start developing things like weight gain or their clothes not fitting well or some bowel symptoms or bladder symptoms, um, early satiety, eating a little and not being able to eat more, getting up at night, and especially if these symptoms come kind of all at once, that that is something that they need to be seen by their provider. 
Um, there's a lot of literature that there's many different things that cause these symptoms that are not cancer, for sure. We will actually all experience them, and a lot of them are hormonal. But the difference between the women who experience these symptoms hormonally is that those symptoms come and go. The women who subsequently develop ovarian cancer, these symptoms usually happen every single day for two weeks. So it is very important for women to always be aware and listen to their bodies. And when they listen to their bodies and present to their providers, for providers to be educated and to understand this kind of constellation of symptoms that would require further workup. Um, prevention is key. You know, early detection is challenging. Um, prevention is so, so important because we know that many of these cancers are actually genetic and have certain genetic mutation that predispose women to these cancers. So that is why it is so important to know your family history and what genes you carry and do uh, that kind of risk reduction from that knowledge. And then the the last kind of group of gynecologic cancers that you had mentioned earlier were um, vaginal cancers and cancers of kind of the external genitalia. Those are often cancers that we don't we don't hear a lot about. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, you're you're exactly correct. Those cancers are much more rare. Um, they are also commonly HPV driven, and a lot of them um, also involve the cervix. Um, we see a little bit more commonly either cancer of the vulva or precancer of the vulva. And uh, again, luckily, a lot of these are caught in the precancer stage. Um, and as long as women, again, are, are aware of their anatomy and aware they have some ulcers or bleeding or some nodules on the outside of their body that doesn't feel normal or feels new, that they should be seen by their provider and that lesion should be biopsied. Um, again, luckily, those are usually seen or felt, and usually they can be cured or even better caught in the precancerous stages. So, you know, it sounds like um, really you need to be very um, concerned about Number one, getting an HPV vaccine if you can, uh, if you meet guidelines for that. Um, number two, making sure that you get a, a pap smear on a regular basis. And number three, um, that you're really paying attention to, to symptoms. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the HPV vaccine and who is eligible for it? It seems to me that uh, historically it has only been for young girls, and now the criteria have have expanded uh, for um, women who may not have had it before up to a certain age limit. Can you can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So HPV vaccine, as I mentioned before, really just has been miraculous. You know, um, we have um, in the cancer industry. Uh, talked about and thought about and researched vaccines for generations. This one truly made a tremendous difference. Um, you know, from my world of, of clinical practice, I see um, cancer, cervical cancer, or even cervical severe precancer so much more rarely now that this vaccine became commonplace. And you're exactly correct. You know, when this became available, it was from women, from of young girls from age 9 to 25. Uh, there was a lot of thought that we wanted to give it before um, girls or women were sexually active. 
um, before they actually were exposed to HPV. But then a lot of studies came out and a lot of literature came out. And now that's, this vaccine is actually indicated for women up to age 45. And there's some thought that even for women who have some sort of HPV strains, that getting a vaccine would help them fight the other strains that they don't yet have, especially if they have new partners and would be exposed to other strains of HPV. So um, I wholeheartedly recommend the HPV vaccine, but not just to girls, but also to boys. Yeah, um, because it, it sounds like it, it can certainly prevent a, a number uh, of cancers. Talk to us a little bit more about um, screening. So you you had mentioned pap smears, and many women know that they should be getting pap smears, but may not be familiar about things like, well, when should we start that? And how often should we get pap smears? And when should they stop? And um, is it just a pap smear or do people do HPV testing at the same time? Um, can you help us to understand a few of those questions? Yeah. So that means that's a wonderful question. And that's a discussion that a lot of us have frequently. Um, the guidelines for pap smears have really been changing quite greatly over the years. Um, when we understood that these cancers are really HPV-driven, we now understand that it's really HPV that drives them. So right now, even more important than the pap smear is the HPV testing. And for women who don't have the HPV, for them, the pap smear guidelines are much more relaxed. So that's the key for that. And so we are going to pick up the conversation and learn a little bit more about screening and perhaps treatment right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about gynecologic cancers with my guest, Dr. Elena Ratner. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their liver cancer program brings together a dedicated group of specialists whose focus is determining the best personalized treatment plan for each patient. Learn more at smilocancerhospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Elena Ratner. We're talking about the care of patients with gynecologic cancers. And Elena, right before the break, you were talking a little bit about some of the controversies with regards to uh, screening and how these screening guidelines have changed. You mentioned uh, that these days um, HPV testing is really important and it may influence um, what the guidelines are for pap tests. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, nice. So the thing with, with pap smears um, and really how I look at all cancer treatment, prevention, uh, testing, screening, everything has to be personalized. You know, we are now living in an era where not everybody should be treated exactly the same. Everything should be individualized. Everything should be personalized. So we use these guidelines that are available, uh, but again, um, I wholeheartedly feel that these are just guidelines and depending on specific uh, presentation, history, family history, concerns, symptoms, things, um, uh, these uh, screening tests could be done more frequently. But the guidelines are now much more relaxed. Um, we start uh, screening, start trying pa uh, checking pap smears at age 21, regardless on, on when um, the patient first starts having intercourse. Um, women who are 21 uh, to 29 can have pap smears alone every three years. Um, HPV testing alone can be considered for women who are um, age 25 to 29, but pap smear tests are still preferred. Um, but then the bigger group is women age 30 to 65, and those women have three options for testing. They can have a pap smear and an HPV test every five years. That is kind of what's preferred. You know, again, uh, HPV is really associated with these cancers or precancers, so it's important to test. Um, or they can just have a pap smear by themselves, by, by itself every three years, or they can have HPV testing alone every five years. Um, and again, the, the thinking for this is that um, so many of these cancers are HPV-driven. And HPV is actually a very, very common virus. A lot of women um, in their 20s will have positive HPV pap smears. And those actually don't matter that much because it is super, super prevalent. Um, the one that matters are the ones that are long-living. So that's why we don't routinely start uh, checking um, HPV or worrying about HPV until after age 30, because a lot of women will get the HPV and then their body will clear it. We worry and or we watch more closely those HPV infections that stay after age 30. And then those we watch and we just check the pap smears together with them because, again, whatever this is, this is usually pretty slow growing. And as long as you keep checking pap smears um, and HPV uh, typing at these kind of intervals, we will catch it usually in the precancer stage if anything was to happen. And so let's talk a little bit more about um, treatments. And you, you had mentioned that everything should be personalized um, in terms of uh, not only the the screening, but also uh, treatment. So for cervical cancer, for example, um, if you should find a precancerous lesion, um, how is that treated? How do you kind of go about thinking about the management of, of cervical cancer? Yeah. So, so much in the world of gynecologic cancer has become better, better and smarter and personalized um, and individualized and much less aggressive. Nowadays, uh, we are able to replace big, aggressive, radical surgeries that we used to do in the older days, you know, seven, 10 years back. We're now able to replace the surgeries, which are much less aggressive, much more quality of life-centric procedures. 
So for cervical cancer or more so for cervical precancer, there's many procedures that are available. We do these surgeries frequently for women who are young, who still want to have kids, and we're able to make that happen. We're able to do procedures which are fertility sparing um, and get rid of the precancer. Um, but even in the world of ovarian cancer, which is, again, kind of the most difficult cancer that we deal with, uh, we used to do these big, big surgical debulkings, uh, you know, where patients would stay in the hospital for weeks. Now we can do the same surgeries laparoscopically or robotically uh, where women can go home next morning. So the paradigm of ovarian cancer and really gynecologic cancer is really changing drastically and in a wonderful way. And so... You know, tell us a little bit more about uh, the management of these cancers. So in the older days, five years back, we used to treat all these cancers in a very similar fashion. Uh, the women would would be diagnosed with this cancer. Um, then they would have surgery, and then they would have a standard chemotherapy. Nowadays, not only are we making great advances with advocacy and, um, and awareness and having women um, know exactly what to look out for and make sure that they're getting the perfect care, um, but then they can have really personalized robotic, you know, still radical, but very minimally invasive surgery. And after that, we do not treat cancers the same. We study the cancers. We take them out. We take them to the lab. We study them for multiple, multiple mutations. And then we treat specifically that woman, you know, not the cancer, because her cancer is not the same as the cancer of somebody else. We treat specifically her tumor, um, and we're able to very frequently do so with um, targeted therapies, in addition frequently to standard therapy that also has great success, but we're able to know exactly what mutations that patient has, and especially what, what mutations her tumor has, and we're able to target them specifically. And not only will that allow us to um, treat the cancers better, to to get better outcomes. But as important, it also allows for better quality of life and it allows women to continue living their lives with much less toxicity, and much less side effects. You know, it, and that's fabulous. But one of the things that people often fear about ovarian cancer is that it does tend to be deadly in terms of prognosis. Can you talk to us about um, how the prognosis of ovarian cancer has changed over the past five years, if it has, um, and, and and what that kind of looks like? Um, so, yeah, so, so the prognosis is improving. Um, women are living longer. Um, the proportion of women who are cured is somewhat higher. Um, and I really um, think that that is all because of the treatments that we have been able to come up with and develop and use during this time. You know, um, for example, we in this in this search for uh, genomic um, or germline mutations, uh, we now are able to identify. Uh, a subset of patients, of women, who are very sensitive to certain um, targeted therapies, such as immunotherapy, such as something called PARP inhibitors. Um, and the women who are 
who have these mutations, who benefit from these treatments, do marvelously. You know, there's really miraculous outcomes that we have had over this period of time with this new targeted therapies, specifically for women who have these mutations. So, so the, the improved prognosis and the improved survival is all due to that, to the fact that we are treating these things in a better way, in a smarter way, and we're able to test better and know who are the right uh, candidates for specific targeted therapies. And I think that's only going to get bigger and that's only going to get better. There's so many trials that are happening right now looking at a whole different variety of these targeted therapies. And again, it's not for everybody. You know, not every target is for everybody. That is, that is the future. That is the importance of this, to understand the personal approach to what this particular tumor carries and then be able to treat it with a specific drug, specific medicine for that specific tumor. Yeah, so important in terms of really uh, promoting clinical trial participation so that we can offer patients uh, the latest therapies that really might be targeted to their particular tumor. One of the things that I often think about in terms of ovarian cancer is the fact that in part because of, as you say, a lack of awareness, so many of these ovarian cancers present late. They present uh, at stage four with distant metastatic disease. Has the prognosis of those patients also improved um, with these therapies? Can you, can you talk a little bit more about metastatic ovarian cancer? Yeah, so the great majority of ovarian cancers, unfortunately, present metastatic, exactly as you said, in stage three and stage four. So all the cancers I talked about up to now with better prognosis and targeted therapies is actually about those cancers. So yes, for women with advanced disease, which is very frequently how these are diagnosed, uh, prognosis is better, therapies are better, toxicity is better, um, but it is really the key to curing ovarian cancer, the key to eradicating ovarian cancer is early detection. It is education, it is awareness, it is um, education for the providers, because if these cancers are diagnosed in stage one and stage two, great majority of them are cured. So that is why, in, you know, in addition to drug development, in addition to everything else that we do in the lab to try to understand the therapy and resistance to, to chemotherapy and side effects, it is so important to concentrate on early detection because that truly saves lives. Yeah. I, I think that there's two key messages there, right? The, the first one is that if you have been diagnosed with metastatic uh, ovarian cancer, the first piece of, of key message that I think that you pointed out is that all is not lost, that uh, that things are improving and that there is still hope. And the second is really about uh, the concept of, of listening to your body and, and trying to find these cancers earlier. But a lot of the symptoms that you had mentioned earlier are things that are really common. Um, so is it that people should be paying more attention to that when they're postmenopausal or it, can ovarian cancer occur at any age so that, you know, if you are feeling like you are having early satiety and that your 
clothes aren't fitting right and you're having bloating and so on. And that's been going on for a couple of weeks, but you're premenopausal, you should still get that checked out. Or you may be feeling like that might be like being a bit of a hypochondriac. So can you help us with that? Yeah, wonderful question. So I think it's important to remember that the lifetime incidence of ovarian cancer is 1.4%, <laughs> which is wonderful. So so yes, great majority of women who have these symptoms will not have cancer. They will only have hormonal changes, anything normal. But women who do develop cancer, almost 100% of them say they knew it. So that's the key. The key doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter what stage of your life you are. You know your bodies. You know your body better than anybody else. So, And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If you feel that something is not right, you go and you seek help and you see your provider and you have a pelvic exam um, and you just make sure that you're being hurt. Dr. Elena Ratner is a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.